My goodness. Hi. Um, as a reporter, uh, I feel compelled to say something about the biggest story in the country right now, O.J. Simpson. Is there a lesson to be learned from this tragic fall of a larger-than-life hero? Uh, as I thought about this this morning, when they told me I was going to speak at lunch, uh, I remembered something the great English novelist Anthony Trollope once said. He said, success is a necessary misfortune of life, but it's only, the, it's only to the very unfortunate that it comes early. And therein lies the lesson. It's not success that brings real joy. It's not outside recognition. It's not rewards, although getting awards can be nice, as we're all learning here. The real joy lies in the actual doing of a job you like. Moreover, real solid success must be built slowly, brick by brick, through arduous hard work. Please, all of you who have just graduated from high school, when you get your first jobs, think small, start small, and move along with baby steps, because meteors have a way of crashing to the ground. When you don't get a big job right off, you'll be lucky. You have to learn your craft. You have to learn it from the bottom. If your foundation isn't solid, when you climb, it won't support you. You will feel insecure, and you will not come across as confident. Now, here's my story. I floundered around at first. I've been so pleased to meet so many of you who don't know what you want to do in life, and I think that's just fine. No one ever suggested journalism to me when I was in college or even for the many years after. I kept walking around saying, how do people find out what they want to do? If you don't know, that search can often be more frustrating than the climb once you find out and know what you want to do. I still don't know how people find out what they want to do. You just have to ask people and keep searching. But when you find it, believe me, you will know. I was 35. Uh, excuse me, I was 25. I was 25. I had already grad gone to graduate school for two years, and I had had two completely unconnected jobs. When by chance I met a reporter, and I said, so what do you do all day long? And he told me. And I was hit by a thunderbolt, just like Michael in The Godfather when he fell in love. I just knew. In that moment, when he told me what he did all day long, I said, wow, that's me. From that minute, I had to become a reporter. Nothing else mattered. Dating, which was, had been very important to me. Eating, which has always been important to me. All of that went away, and all I wanted to do was become a reporter. And talk about a slow climb. Don't forget, I was 25 when I heard the magic words. And yet I must tell you that the little baby steps that I took were all fun and always exciting, and I mean that, and they still are. They're still fun and exciting. It never felt like a struggle. 
because, hey, I was in journalism. My first job in the field was actually pretty nifty. Uh, I was hired as a researcher at the NBC News election unit for the 1968 presidential election. But two years later, I still wasn't a reporter. And an NBC executive did me a big favor, and he said, come here, kid, I have to tell you something. Nobody starts at the top. You have to pay your dues. So the meteor crashed, and I quit my job at the network, and I went and got a job at a small local television station, and I was 27. And I learned to be a reporter. I learned from the bottom, and I made more mistakes, and there were more failures than I can even count. But luckily, I made my mistakes in a smaller place. I went to Washington in 1972 and started my career, and I was 30. CBS hired me. It was the year affirmative action went into effect. Now, I'm absolutely positive there was no connection. They happened to also hire Bernie Shaw and Connie Chung, the three of us. My very first assignment was Watergate, which was a reporter's dream. I covered it right from the very beginning. And finally, as many of the older people here will remember, there were Senate hearings. And I'll bet all of you studied this, because my daughter, who just finished her junior year, studied Watergate. Uh, there were Senate hearings that were televised daily, and my job was to cover them. And yet, I was number two on the story. We had senior correspondents who, with much more experience who covered the main story for the CBS Evening News. And yet, every night, CBS did a special. And it was prime time. It was a half hour. We excerpted the day's testimony. And it always ended with a 10-minute roundtable discussion. And my boss came to me. I was still relatively new and young at least young in the business. And he said, do you think you're ready to sit up there with the veteran males and analyze the day's events on live primetime television? And I lied and said I was ready. <laughs> and so every night, I was introduced as a member of the round table panel discussion. And there were always two veteran males, one to my right and one to my left. And we had a moderator. And night after night, the moderator would ask a question, and the two men would fight to answer it. And one would answer it. And then the other one would disagree with him, whatever he said. And night after night, you would hear this little, tiny, disembodied voice saying, but I agree. I'd like to. That's not what I. They never let me talk night after night after night. So finally, and the, believe me, there was mail on it, phone calls, telegrams. We didn't have faxes in those days. It was getting embarrassing. So the bosses <laughs> called us in and said, look, tonight either she talks or we're not going to do this anymore. It's getting, the heat is too intense. So I knew I was going to talk, and they knew I was going to talk. And yet, for some impish reason, the moderator 
who was, whose name was John Hart, opened with the following question. Well, folks, what's the gossip about the FBI director? And I heard the word gossip. And you must remember that there were very few women on television, and certainly at that, by that point, very few who were covering political stories. So I knew a lot was riding on my first answer after two weeks of these roundtables. But I heard the word gossip, and I said, you know, I don't think I should be gossiping. That's not what I'm going to do, so I will answer the second question. So I sat there, and the two men waited for me to answer the question. Pretty soon, they're physically turning into me and all but going, take it away. But I still didn't talk. So finally, Dan Shore, a true veteran, said, live, primetime television, coast to coast, well, John, if it's gossip you want, that's why we have a woman here. So what did I do? Well, I know I wanted to hit him, but I didn't. I opened my mouth, and out came the most pathetic string of gibberish that has ever been uttered on any television anywhere in all of time. I stopped in the middle of a sentence. I prayed that the show would end, which it finally did ran upstairs and called home. Daddy, how do you write a letter of resignation? I, they finally threw me the ball. I had it in my hand, and I dropped it. I blew it. I can never show my face around here on television ever again. All I want to do is just go hide. I want to be in a hole. My dad, being a dad, said, come on, you were great, brilliant. What thoughts? You're so much smarter than they are. And my God, you looked good. <laughs> and I said, Dad, I was terrible. I was embarrassing. And if you aren't going to be honest with me, put mother on the phone. <laughs> and my father said, Mother can't talk right now. She's too upset. <laughs> well, my mother called me back. And she said, you know, one day you're going to laugh about this. <laughs> I'm laughing. She was livid. She said, we'll get him. <laughs> and by then I was crying. She said, my daughter doesn't cry. My daughter fights back. And my daughter never, ever gives up. Well, I don't know what she did, but I got on that show the next night and the next night and the next night. I don't know how I did it. I did not want to show my face, but I did it. And it taught me more than any of the little successes. And you're all going to stumble. And you're all going to say, I can't get up. And you're all going to say, I can't show my face. 
and you will, because there's no alternative. I don't think it's easy to give up. It's, it's not. It's awfully hard to go through that veil of pain, but you do it, and it teaches you, and you become tough. And eventually, well, I don't want to say eventually. It took me seven more years, but I was finally named White House Correspondent in 1979. In all my career, because I loved it so much, I never really asked for the next assignment. I just was so turned on but what it, by whatever I was doing every day, and I mean every day, every single day, um, that I never thought about the next rung of the ladder. I just was happy being there. And I wish that for all of you, because that's what you're in that search for. If you don't know what you want, you know, you just have to keep looking for it because you want to wake up feeling that way every day. So now I'm at 60 Minutes after Washington for 20 years, a different kind of journalism from the daily deadline, two-minute maximum reporting, all my pieces from the White House, two minutes max. That's what I did for 20 years, and now I'm into journalism that has a little more depth. I get to pick my own stories, which is quite heady. And 60 Minutes makes me feel younger. Of course, you'd feel younger if you surrounded yourselves with guys that old, too. <laughs> Mike Wallace just turned 76. To me, an important goal to set is not to get to the top, but to survive. Not to burn up and burn out. Of course, if you're trying to survive, you obviously have to be careful that it doesn't make you cautious and that you don't become too afraid to risk. You can never do that. The other thing I really want to make sure I say is that while my job obviously is important to me, the best thing in my life, the thing that really honestly makes me the happiest is my daughter. And my husband would say the same thing. So this isn't a woman thing. As my mother said when I told her that I didn't think I'd be able to fit children in when I was 36, she said, you little fool. <laughs> and then she explained to me that having kids is the real meaning of life. And thank goodness I listened to her again. So back to OJ. It appears that celebrity ain't all that it's cracked up to be. So don't reach for too much too fast. Find something you love and stick with it just because you love to do it. OJ made me think of a haunting poem that I studied in college and that I'm sure you'll all read when you get there if you haven't read it in your high schools. And I'd like to read it to you because I think it's appropriate. It's by Edward Arlington Robinson, and most of you in the room have read it before. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from sole to crown, clean-favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked. But still he fluttered pulses when he said, good morning and he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king. 
and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. Thank you. <laughs>